Hi, everybody. Welcome to Humane Voices. Carrie here. I am flying solo today because my co-host Kelly is out rescuing kittens or iguanas or whatever she's doing when she's not here. Recently, our animal rescue team um, supported local law enforcement agencies with an alleged cat neglect case in Mississippi. Responders removed 176 cats from three different residential properties owned by one person. Many of the cats were living in just really filthy conditions, um, and the animals um, got attention and care from our responders and veterinarians, and they're doing well. Um, in the days following rescues like these, we receive a lot of questions from the public um, on social media. And so we decided to, you know, take it in sort of a new direction today and answer some of the questions that we get on today's episode. And um, my guest today, I'm excited to have Shalimar Oliver, the case manager for our animal crimes team. Shalimar, thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, I, before we get into it, I am hoping that maybe you could tell me a little bit about your own background and how you got into this field and sort of, you know, how long you've been doing these kinds of investigations. Uh, sure. Yeah, I've been the um, one of our animal crimes case managers for um, going on. Uh, this is my sixth year with HSUS. Mm -hmm. Prior to uh, coming to HSUS, I was uh, I was an officer in San Diego County, California. Mm -hmm. And in that role, you know, uh, conducted various animal cruelty investigations. Um, and, and overall, I think I've been working with animals for 20 something years now. Mm -hmm. It's been obviously like a passion that uh, grew out of something as a child. And uh, I was born and raised in Australia. So I worked for the Sydney RSPCA in Australia. Oh, great. Uh -huh. And that kind of stemmed over when I moved to America. And uh, I continued my work with the San Diego Humane Society as well before I moved to the county. Fantastic. Okay. So in terms of the particular case that we were just involved in, like how did it originate? That uh, this case was um, originated when our animal rescue team was contacted by a local group that was working with law enforcement. And they determined that the situation well exceeded what their local resources could essentially provide. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's a pretty, pretty common way that we get involved in these cases, right? I mean, it is, especially, I mean, we, we've seen an uptick in, in the request for various assistance from agencies all over the country that are experiencing mm -hmm. these large-scale issues, mostly due to a lack of resources uh, within their own community. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, maybe we could talk about this both in the specific and the general, but I mean, I'm curious, like, what kind of conditions did you find the cats in? Uh, it was... Pretty deplorable when you, I, I had access to only two of three of the properties. Um, mm -hmm. And in what I had seen, uh, sadly, it was fairly typical of these uh, mm -hmm. neglect situations. So, you know, you walk in and it's difficult to breathe and mm -hmm. you have that immediate uh, foul odor that hits you, whether it's the odor of feces, uh, urine, the... Uh, countless amount of cats inside each house and various ones that are free roaming and loose versus mm. ones that are confined in various crates and kennels. Uh, and then you obviously have varying stages of illness amongst mm -hmm. that type of population. And so it, it's a lot to take in at first yeah. and assess. Um, it's just a really unfortunate situation to have to see that. And then on top of that, know that there is somebody that's living in these conditions every wow. single day. 
Yeah. I mean, if it's difficult to breathe, that's really, it's just kind of incredible to think about. I mean, so when you're handling a case like this and assisting local law enforcement, I mean, do you find that this is, I mean, have our lo- local law enforcement's teams used to dealing with a case like this, or are they surprised by what they see when we assist on these things? I think it depends on the agency. If you're talking mm-hmm. about a, a law enforcement agency, like a sheriff's office or police department, yes. Quite frequently, they're very shocked and overwhelmed with taking everything in and Mm -hmm. understanding and processing what's happening. Uh, Animal Control, Humane Society, uh, police officers, those guys, very familiar with this type of uh, situation. And um, so it, it really depends which agency, but I've certainly seen a lot of law enforcement that, you know, with what they deal with in human crimes, which is shocking enough. Yeah. It's interesting to see you know, the shock on their face when they come out of houses like this. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, so in this particular particular case and more broadly, like how does the dynamic work with our team and the law enforcement team? Like what are what are each of those teams sort of involved in handling in these cases? So the law enforcement team, so whichever enforcement has uh, enforcement authority has jurisdiction, um, what that means is who who's the agency that can handle these types of cases, whether it be animal control or a sheriff's office, for example, mm-hmm. um, they will initiate an investigation. And, you know, if there's a concern for a crime occurring or that someone or something isn't safe, they will open an investigation to assess a situation. Mm-hmm. And so in this situation, this is where, you know, law enforcement takes over. They determine that there's enough information or evidence uh, that there is in fact an issue and it might be extreme enough or exited enough to the point where they have to obtain a search warrant. Mm. And then it's kind of like, well, the authorities can come in and they have the ability to execute a search warrant. But then what happens with the animals? This is live evidence that doesn't go into oh, an God, evidence yeah. lockdown. Mm. And so then you have your local shelters, your local rescue groups, humane societies coming in, having to do the legwork there with the animals and process everything. And that's not just on day of seizure. It doesn't end there. It's mm. going um, even if the animals are surrendered, if they're not surrendered, some of these shelters can hold these animals for years. Mm. And so to point out the obvious that cost to care for those animals uh, is exorbitant and Mm. in some situations can bankrupt a nonprofit organization Mm. uh, and weighs heavily on, you know, county government agencies when they are responsible for the primary care of those animals. Yeah, of course. So what do the charges tend to be? I mean, do they vary case to case? I mean, is it, is it different? And I mean, one of the things I, I feel like, we've seen a lot of is, I mean, in some of these cases, the number of animals we're talking about here, it seems to suggest that there are likely some mental health issues in play in in cases like this. And so I'm wondering how that how that impacts how the case plays out and how charges are decided on. Definitely. It really, it depends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very common response in our field. (laughs) Um, Every every situation is different. So you kind of have to consider the level of suffering, the longevity of suffering, um, applicable laws in the state court mm. processes, and ultimately, it's the charging and prosecuting agency that really should determine what exactly, what positive outcome are you looking for mm-hmm. uh, with this for everyone involved. So not just the animals, not just the the individual that might be involved, because the mission is always to ensure the animals are no longer suffering, and the alleged offender can receive help. 
Mm. And, you know, essentially no longer own animals because we know there's close to 100% recidivism rate. If there's no restrictions in the criminal case, more than likely they will reoffend slash, you know, recollect animals again. Mm -hmm. So with cases that involve sort of this number of animals, I mean, how does that even happen? I, I I mean, like I think about like how difficult it is for me to just care for our two dogs. Like I feel like our house is barely under control. And when I think about 170 something cats, I'm like, wow, how do you even get to that place? Uh, first of all, I can relate. I <laughs> one cat with multiple personalities, but he's, he's a lot to handle himself. Um, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I think in my experience, it varies because often the collector experiences some type of negative trigger that mm-hmm. initiates that collection of something. In this case, it was animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the collector might think that they're the only ones or the best ones to provide the care for these animals. Mm-hmm. And they consider them family or like their children. Um, so they continue to collect the animals despite their own inability to provide those basic care, you know, uh, the basic care to both the animals, but also often sadly themselves as well. Mm, yeah. So there's like, there's real human tragedy in this as well as tragedy for the animals involved. There is. It's, it's a, in fact, it's a community issue too. Yeah. So. I mean, speaking of the community, I, I, I'm surprised that you don't have, I mean, to get to, you know, 100, 200, multiple hundreds of animals, I'm surprised, like, do, do neighbors notice when this stuff is happening? I mean, do they call it in? Are they, are they aware of it? Or does it depend? I think there's different factors, certainly. So sometimes geographical location can certainly isolate these people. So they're not on anyone's radar. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the issue is hidden really well, even in a residential area. Um, family might be far away and unaware of the issue. And in other situations, so neighbors are actually the ones to alert the authorities mm. as, you know, they're in a prime position to witness potential issues and concerns. And uh, recently, we're seeing more of these cases where local groups and authorities have been alerted. They simply just don't have the resources mm. to intervene. Right. I mean, having been on a couple of these cases myself, I can just imagine, like, if if our neighbors had a place that smelled like some of the places that I've visited, I think I would be calling someone. But yeah, I mean, like, if you don't have the capacity to take in, you know, I, I've been to sort of little county shelters that seem to have capacity for maybe 20 animals. I mean, right. that's crazy. Yeah. So in the past, you know, I know when we've written about this issue, you know, when I, w- when I was doing stories about this years ago, we used to call these cases hoarding hoarding cases. And I understand that the field in general has started to move away from the term hoarding and hoarder a little bit. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about why. So hoarding is a term that we have to be careful with how we use it, right? Mm-hmm. It is in the DSM-5. This is a manual of mental disorders from the American Psychiatric Association. It's a clinical diagnosis. So mm-hmm. technically for those of us that don't have the, the ability to diagnosis, we use the more appropriate term and refer to this as large-scale cruelty or large-scale neglect. Okay. And while it might be a mental health issue, if a crime has occurred, it, it shouldn't necessarily exempt the alleged offender from, um, you know, potential prosecution and getting intervention and resources and services. So what can just sort of the average person do to to prevent this sort of thing? I mean, like, I would imagine that it, considering the sort of complex sort of interlocked nature of things around, you know, resources of the local shelter, 
the sort of mental health conditions of the person involved, that that it might be necessary to in, engage a whole bunch of different service agencies. So how long do you have for me to answer this? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I think a couple of things I want to, you know, besides the spay and neuter point, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for me, I would want to mention that I think education on this subject is crucial, right? Yeah. Our law enforcement and other public officials that get involved with these, they need to be educated on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that we actually fortunately provide uh, in the free law enforcement trainings that we offer nationwide. Um, there's just this expectation for law enforcement, animal control uh, to respond to these reports, yet little to no trainings actually provided to them on conducting the investigations. Wow. Um, I mean, it's also you know, why when these cases go through the court process, authorities need to be requesting uh, probation, ban of ownership on animal of animals, mm. uh, and mental health counseling for these alleged offenders. Mm. I will also advocate for our shelters nationwide, support your local shelters. They're beyond maximum capacity and struggling with little to no resources. Um, so they struggle with these situations too, because they're the ones that ultimately are left, you know, to provide that care, which as we know, you know, even if there were 200 healthy animals, 200 sick animals to care for those is extremely expensive and takes a huge toll on them. Mm. Um, I would also say as well, like adoption screening, uh, is a challenge, uh, when that's been mentioned as well, you know, like, can you prevent these people and set it off from a different point where they don't have access to these animals. It's it's hard. Mm. Um, there's so many platforms and avenues for them to adopt and find and take uh, more animals themselves. Yeah, of course, right. Yeah. But then touching on what you had said, um, where it becomes a multidisciplinary approach, this is where we definitely, I advocate for this all the time. I, in fact, I just mentioned this yesterday in one of the classes I was teaching to law enforcement is that we all need to work together. We need mm-hmm. to be sharing information with each other because most often, more than likely, we're all visiting the same property. Mm, right. Code enforcement, animal control, with different society, goals. Mm-hmm. law enforcement, they're out there at some point. Um, so they should be sharing the information to work together. Yeah. Um, and then the obvious, if you see something, say something, or in this case, if you smell something, say something. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like basically, you know, that there, that old saying about to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, like with different agencies coming in, they're all seeing it through their own lenses. And what you really need is to apply the entire toolbox, right? Right. Exactly. Um, so just out of curiosity, like in terms of some of the conditions that we see at at places like this, I mean... I, I've heard there are cases where you see cases, I mean, in this case, with all the cats, you found cats in the freezer? So, unfortunately, you know, in general, with these types of situations, it's not uncommon mm. uh, to find deceased animals on a property. And I would say in situations like this, collectors often have a hard time or this inability to let go. Wow. Um, and to discard the animal because obviously, as we kind of touched on, um they view this animal with they have such love and value. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like a child or a family member for them. Mm-hmm. So it isn't uncommon uh in these types of situations to find things like that. Wow. I, I know another question that we get um 
frequently just based on our own coverage of cases like this is that very frequently we're using the term allegedly or alleged case. Can you talk a little bit about like why we use that terminology? So allegedly, alleged is a term that we obviously have to be mindful of when these are active criminal cases. Mm. The last thing we want to do is negatively impact the investigation and the outcome, right? That's affecting the individual, the animals, and everyone else involved um, while that case goes through the court process. Uh, Another thing to point out, though, is that at the same time, when we're using that term, I think it's, it's also we want to be respectful of this alleged offender. Yeah. And and wait until, uh, you know, the investigation is completed. The court process has taken place. There's been either charges or a conviction. So it's really just taking into consideration everyone that's involved, Mm -hmm. um, not just from the authorities perspective, but the person themselves. So in terms of dealing with this particular case, I mean, you, you, you've managed so many of these over the course of your career. I mean, did anything particular sort of stand out about this case particularly? Uh, yes. So uh, I've worked in the animal welfare field for over 20 years and, and 16 of those years I've worked in or directly with law enforcement. Mm. I definitely, what stuck out was I was so impressed with this law enforcement agency. Oh. And the um, it was incredible. They responded in both a professional and a compassionate manner. Um, but there wasn't just concern for the animals involved. There was also genu- genuine concern for the alleged offender. Hmm. Uh, they didn't dust this situation under the rug. They saw uh, an issue. They saw the impact on the animals, the individual, and they saw the effect it was going to have on their community. Um, so they took all the appropriate steps to getting the best possible outcome overall. Hmm. And I think, um, I hope, actually, the other law enforcement agencies in the state look to them for guidance if should they encounter something similar because they really – they set the bar. It was a pleasure working with them. Oh, that's terrific. So just before we wrap up, Shalimar, I would love to uh, and thank you for being so generous. And I mean, it's great to hear that this agency handled this so well. If other agencies are sort of worried they'll encounter a situation like this or want to get trained up, like what are resources that you would suggest they turn to? I mean, the training that you guys provide, what are the other places that they could turn to as resources? Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, HSUS has the Law Enforcement Training Center, and and the mission there is to provide free training to law enforcement across the country in various topics related to animal cruelty, animal crimes. Um, and, you know, because again, we're tasking these officers to go out in the field. They, they go through months of academies, months of field training for human crimes. Yeah. But they're exposed to animals and then they get nothing and they're like, here, you know, you should know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so the training is huge, uh, regardless of where it comes from. You know, uh, obviously, HSUS is a bonus, but uh, other resources, too. There are other national nonprofits out there that can support them. Mm-hmm. One of the common things that I find is is the uh, relationship between a law enforcement agency and animal control in some counties that I've worked in. There isn't one. Mm, they haven't thought to really reach yeah. out to each other and connect with each other and, and, you know, for law enforcement to use animal control or a humane society as a resource mm. um, and to learn from. Because these guys, you know, animal control and the humane society, they have, they're the boots on the ground with animal related complaints um, and have that expertise with mm. handling and 
understanding those types of situations. So definitely making sure that one, they've obviously connected with a local animal control and humane society, but other resources as well. It's really kind of looking for if you have a state association, lots of law enforcement don't Mm. realize they might actually have a state animal control association who usually is going to know somebody to connect you with to get assistance. Mm. And that's beyond, obviously, as I mentioned, the national um, organizations that are out there that support all of these types of operations. Um, And who else? Other training as well that's afforded by uh, places like um, Justice Clearinghouse. Mm -hmm. There's also the National Animal Control Association, NACA, um, who is an obvious plethora of information and resources and contacts. Uh, So there's, there's a lot of groups out there that obviously want to help, but I would definitely check to see if within your own state that you have, if you have an animal control association first and reach out to those national organizations, they want to help and be involved because they, we understand um, resources are few and far between right now for most places. Yeah, for sure. It just sounds like more, more reason to follow your good advice about how we're all in this together and really need to work together on this. Yeah. Well, Shalimar, thank you so much for being here. This is really interesting stuff. Um, Thank you for the work you do. And um, we're going to wrap it up now. Uh, This has been Humane Voices. I'm Carrie, and we're looking forward to seeing you and hearing from you on future episodes. Mm